and welcome to A Mesh, where I, Molly, interview my mom, Lisa B. Kaufman, a criminal defense lawyer who is going to recount all her misspent youth and path to adulthood. Because why share her trauma with a therapist when I have a microphone? Hey, maybe I'll say something insightful, or maybe we can all learn something. So my mom was born as a one-night stand in Chicago and adopted by a wealthy family, became a juvenile delinquent, wanted to be a cop, became a lawyer, quit drinking, lived out of her car for a year trying to find herself, landed in Montana by fate, then became a single mother by choice. Subscribe to hear the stories along the way. All right. So mom, let's make sure everyone gets to know you immediately in an hour or less. Can you do that? Your whole life story? Sure. You want me to start in the beginning, the middle, or the end? <laughs> well, what's the end? Do you know past the present? <laughs> the end is I die. Beautiful. What do you want to happen <laughs> when you die? Do you want a big funeral? You, you want a party, I right? Want, I want you to donate anything you can donate that's of any value. I want you to cremate me. I want you to spread my ashes in the Rattlesnake River up in the mountains of Montana. And then I want you to have the biggest freaking party with as many funny people that can tell you as many funny stories about me. And that's it. All right. Sounds good. I feel like you'll do a pretty good job of telling funny stories about you. I've always found you very interesting. And then you get weirdly humble when you're like, I'm not a good storyteller. Why do you refuse to think you're a good storyteller? I think when somebody listens to telling the stories of their own life and they've lived it, it sounds very ordinary. And normal Mm. because we normalize what we lived. So where were you born? I was born in Chicago, Illinois, on the south side um, at Michael Reese Hospital. And I was adopted immediately by a young doctor and his wife who renamed me about six months later at an adoption ceremony. And I believed my whole life that my mother and father were Jewish and gave up the baby and it was all pre-planned before delivery. But is that true? <laughs> and so then we fast forward to 23 and Me and all the spitting everybody was doing to figure out where they came from. And I always thought I wanted to know who my biological mother was to see if her thighs were as fat as mine. And um, came back with uh, basically seven hits of a bunch of sisters and brothers that I didn't know I had. So you know that story. Well, I know that story, but so it wasn't a nice young Jewish couple that gave you up. Who, who gave you up? So my, my biological mother was Jewish and she was married to a non-Jewish man. And she had five children. No, how many? Four. Okay. She had four children. You're the fifth. I was number five. And she had an affair with a Jewish man I don't know if it was one night or several nights. We'll never really know. And when she got pregnant with me, she went to the hospital, delivered the baby, which was me, gave it up. I don't know what her husband knows because he's deceased. I never got to talk to him. But the four children had already named me, Mm -hmm. were excited to see me, wanted to meet me because I've now spoken to three out of the four. And she came home from the hospital and told them the baby had died. So the four siblings grew up thinking that their younger sister had died at birth. But in fact, (laughs) she's doing a podcast. 
I was surreptitiously whisked away by the young doctor and his wife. And, you know, this is back in the early 60s when black market adoptions were much more common. You could sort of work out these arrangements with people under the table and not have to go through anything really official. Mm-hmm. So there I was. <laughs> so you're adopted by Avner and Lorraine. We probably shouldn't say most people's names, but they're both dead. They're not going to care if we talk about them, right? So Avner, A-V-N-E-R, Kaufman was my father, my adopted father, but the only father I ever knew. And he died in 2016. And then his wife, which is my my adoptive mother, she died in April of 2021. Pretty recent. Well, yeah. Okay. I wasn't asked. Thank you. Very informative. So (laughs) you were raised. I think sometimes as an attorney, um, I tend to give you a complete answer that's very precise in its language because that's what I've been trained to do. Oh, because you're just so much smarter than the rest of us. You just no, but you know, or I'm purposely being evasive because it's somehow going to help my cause or help my questioning or something. <laughs> so Avner and Lorraine adopted you and what they were rich, right? When you were a baby. So this is the timeline. I'm born January 9th, 1961. They moved in February, 1961 from their teeny little apartment where they had raised other kids to their first big fancy doctor home on the south side of Chicago. And so when I was about a month old or so, we, the family, myself, Avner and Lorraine, and then two older sisters were all moved into this home, which funny is very close to where the Obamas, or at least Michelle Obama grew up. So I always thought the little kinship with her and her husband, because, you know, I'm sure they think that same way about me. (laughs) Yeah, when people think of Lisa Kaufman, they're like, you know who she reminds me of? The Obamas. (laughs) Well, it was interesting to read Michelle Obama's book because a lot of the places she discussed in the South Side of Chicago, her experience of growing up there, I mean, even though it was from a Black woman's perspective, it was still similar, you know, um, familiar. It was familiar to me. And so it was fun to read that book for that reason. so you're yeah, we lived in an area. We lived on a street called Pill Hill because that's where <laughs> all the doctors that's where all the doctors lived. Yeah, you really so I grew up in a you snuck in there at the right time. You know, you were born and then you got to go to the fancy house. I was under the impression that they were living in luxury way before you were born. No, it all happened. And in fact, my mom before she died told me that when they picked me up from the hospital somewhere around January 9th or 10th, they were in the middle of moving. And she actually had to leave me with like some babysitters for the first few weeks while they were trying to move. So who knows, you know, where attachment issues start and begin and end. But I definitely wasn't hanging out with my mom that first month until they moved into the new home. You weren't really hanging out with your mom ever, were you? Well, you know, I mean, they were good people and they raised me and gave me lots of privileges and private schools and summer camps. And, you know, it was a good life. It wasn't until I got older that, and of course through therapy where you begin to identify issues and areas that may have been problematic or contributed to your issues in your adult life. So, you know, it took a while to sort through all that. What, what do Avner, when you were a kid, what did Avner and Lorraine look like? Look like? Well, yeah, because you've always told me you're, you've never seen your mom without a wig on. I don't know. Tell me what they look like. Oh, oh. Okay, I see what you're saying. 
Well, you have to picture, just think of that uh, series Mad Men that everybody loves. I mean, it was the 1960s. He was a doctor. He worked all the time. My mom was a doctor's wife. You know, she hosted the dinner parties and the things that are at our home for other doctors and their wives or, you know, the nurses or people that we'd have over. In fact, you know, she had dining sets. Uh, complete dining sets of, you know, 12 piece dining sets. But I remember the most about them because I used to help her set the table sometime. Each little dining, uh, you know what I mean? The plate and the fork that's in front of each person had a little ashtray. There's a little teeny <laughs> ashtray next to every plate on the table. I always remember that. <laughs> it's because the 60s. Is so, it because you missed so it? So she was very, very important to her to present things well. She had very exquisite taste, very fine taste, but, you know, she always had her makeup on. You know, I was raised where you don't match metals, right? You don't wear gold and silver together. That's gauche, although it's kind of, I don't know what the rules are anymore. So <laughs> I don't wear jewelry. You know, I don't care. But at the time, it was very important. And, you know, she had her fancy ball gowns and her fancy shoes that matched. And, and she wore a wig and perfect makeup, you know, that whole scene. Why did she wear a wig? Did, did she not? Cause like when I met, when I met her as my grandmother, like she was old and so she didn't have much hair. So wearing a wig made sense. Did she always have wispy little hair? Well, actually she, when you, when you saw her, when she was, I don't know when you met her, I guess she was in her forties or fifties. I have no 40s idea. No, I was in when I had her. <laughs> so she, she was in her eighties. Yeah. Okay. But her hair under her wig actually was quite long. She used to, it was down to her waist and she used to braid it and then wrap the braid on top of her head and put the wig over that. I think because she was thinning mm. up in her, by her forehead. So I don't know when she made the transition to the wig. I mean, I don't remember when in my life she made the wig transition. She used to go every week on Fridays, which is why I used to be able to steal the car to downtown Chicago where she would get you know her hair done and her nails done and do like her day downtown Chicago so hair done is kind of a big umbrella word for she used to you know sometimes get it frosted or get it dyed or get it permed and I don't know when she trans transferred to Wig City. Wig City and your dad was a larger than life character like really funny person right? My dad was a pediatrician and mothers loved him. Families loved him. I grew up wherever I went, whatever I did. I was always like, oh, you're Dr. Kaufman's daughter. Everybody loved him. He had a gregarious personality. He was very fun. Uh, here's an interesting little thing that's kind of unique to our family. So in the 60s and 70s, um, my dad had a lot of patients that were not necessarily white or even black. So, but you're Chicago. just to clarify, you're white, right? I'm very white. Yes, white Jew. White, white Jew. Uh, Ashkenazi Jew. Ninety-seven <laughs> percent, according to Twenty-three and Me. Yeah, that's right. Ninety-seven percent. Um, so, but he had a lot of very diverse and ethnic patients, and part of the culture of many people outside of America, or you know, out of American culture, is to invite white. the family doctor. The family doctor and their whole family to their weddings. Mm -hmm. So I grew up going to Indian weddings and Arab weddings and you know Chinese weddings and Korean weddings. I mean, I went to so many different sort of ethnic, you know, cultural weddings growing up. I just thought that's what everybody did. <laughs> like, and and the other funny thing is that 
growing up, I never knew a wedding was that there was a ceremony. Never got that concept till probably I was in college because we would just show up at the party <laughs> with the sweet table and the food and the seating. I mean, that's when we would show up because we were late to everything. I mean, he was invited to the ceremony, obviously. Would have been interesting to see some of the customs and traditions, I think, of a lot of those cultures, what they did for getting married. But yeah, went to a lot of weddings. What was my point? I was rambling. That Avner, everyone loved Avner, your dad. Oh, yeah. He was like the one, the guy that, you know, all the women lined up to want to get a dance with. He was a good dancer. And when I say dancer, I mean ballroom dancing, foxtrot and that kind of stuff. Um, my mom was very quiet, very demure, often sat in her seat when we were at social occasions. And my dad was always out and about among the party talking to everybody. So how would you describe you? You gave like kind of character outlines of your mom and dad. Who are you right now or in your life? It's probably changed. Perhaps people grow. Were you one of them? I, you know, I don't think I understood when I was younger how important my first primary caretaker was until I got older and learned about people's primary first caretakers and how they can have such an impact on long-term development and growth. But when I was born and we moved into the big house, you know, my two sisters, one was four years older than me and one was 10 years older than me. And my mom had her hands full driving them to ballet lessons and doing whatever they did. And so we had a live in made. And I know, you know, after people saw the movie, The Help, everybody said they were raised by some, a black mama. So I'm not trying to be cliche here, but we did have a black maid who lived with us and she did all the cooking and all the cleaning and everything. But basically she took care of me for the first, I'd say five years of my life. I mean, she's the one I stayed home with. She's the one that I hung out with all day. She's the one that played hide and seek with me in the backyard. I mean, she was my, my attachment figure. She was, my mom was very busy with the other two kids yeah. and her own grief. Why, why was she grieving, Mom? Just put that out there. <laughs> I, was, I didn't mean to just throw that out there. But I mean, <laughs> at the time I was born and brought into the Kaufman, you know, cave, well, it wasn't a cave, but, you know, into the fold, um, she had had two kids that were born naturally that had died within a couple of years. One was five and, and he didn't die until he was five. The other one died when she was three of um, um, a rare chromosomal defect, which is common among Jewish people called Tay-Sachs. So she was grieving the loss of these two kids. And I, I learned through therapy in life that I really think my dad just sort of came home with a new baby, mm -hmm. kind of like a new puppy when the dog dies. So I think that contributed to her lack of being able to really fully bond with me, mm -hmm. even though she was kind and she was nice, but, but it wasn't a loving mother-daughter relationship. I think she was depressed, really. Yeah, well, so are we, so. <laughs> <laughs> Depression and anxiety sure seems to be the, the hallmark of everybody's daily struggles in and, this 21st century. And attachment issues, at least for us. Remember, I got accused of attachment issues lately, and you have very interesting relationships through your whole life that will definitely go into throughout this podcast, teehee, because I'm putting all your trauma on display. But so you have these two people as your parents, Lorraine and Avner, and then you, little rich girl, became a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> well, so I went to all girl private schools until fifth grade. So, you know, for the first, I don't know, what's fifth grade, 10 years old? So first 10 years of my life, 
I was around all girls, all women, sisters. My dad was never around. So I had no concept really of men or boys or anything they did. And then I started a public um, school, fifth grade, which actually, again, the Obamas sent their daughters to. <laughs> it's called the lab school in the University of Chicago. And I went there in fifth and sixth grade. And But it was co-ed. And I was fat. I was, a, I was a fat kid, but I had never thought of myself as overweight. I was kind of a happy, outgoing, you know, should I tell you what my kindergarten teacher said about me? Please, what did she say? <laughs> she, that's back in the days at, at she-she private schools, you know, the teachers would write these full-on narratives about the kids and how they performed rather than just the ABC marks. And she wrote that I was a ray of sunshine. Oh, <laughs> You're something. So, I'm right. Like, yeah, I buy am something. I don't know if I'm a ray of sunshine. We're like a stormy, dark night now. But at the time, I was a ray of sunshine. So, you know, I got thrown into this public fifth grade. And for the first time, I, I dealt with, I guess, bullies, what we call bullies now. With, you know, but at the time, I felt like I was fat. And I didn't never knew I was fat. And fat was bad. Like, it was quite shocking to me to be called fatty and pushed downstairs because I was fat and you know all that kind of stuff so and that kind of bullying or that kind of what I said Jesus I don't know people push people downstairs you know I've seen like all the shitty 80s movies with bullies they're like give me your lunch money it's it's just so foreign to me I didn't know kids pushed you downstairs well you know you'd be walking up or down the stairs at the school and then a bunch of the fifth and sixth graders who didn't like you or who were the jocks or whatever their deal was, you know, they would do like a shoulder punch. You're like, hey, fatty, and bump you in the shoulder till you fell or knocked your books out of your hand, stuff like that, you know. Jesus. It was pretty awful. That's why you started smoking? To get skinny? <laughs> I didn't start smoking in fifth grade. I started smoking when I was 13. Oh, you waited till so seventh grade. I think it was seventh or eighth grade, yeah. Yeah, the, then that was with the neighbor next door. I taught her how to shave her legs, and she taught me how to smoke. What that a fair trade. She gave you a lifelong addiction, and you made her look good. <laughs> not that having not yeah. shaved legs makes you look bad, but I feel like you kind of got screwed yeah, in that deal. Shaving legs in those days? We used to use, like, Nair. Do people even use – I haven't shaved my legs. I hardly shave my legs anymore. You heard – you don't do – pe- Go ahead. I don't know. I don't do anything anymore. No. What you're <laughs> I was going to insult you and be like, you don't have leg hair to shave anymore because old people lose it. Not that you're old. Not, you're distinguished. No, no. I am aging. It's fine to say I'm getting older. Um, and yes, older people don't have as much um, body hair. It's not producing as much, I guess. But my leg hair is as active as ever. I just don't care as much. You just started still, braiding you know, it. Shave. What'd you say? You've just started braiding it now. <laughs> Grading it? Braiding. You know, like a braid? Oh, braiding it. No, not braiding. No, but I don't care if my legs are hairy, except when, again, I'm out in the world, like going to a beach or being around people, then I feel compelled to have to shave them. Otherwise, I don't care. Hmm. But I don't do it for men anymore. But I don't really with men anymore, so I guess it's not really an issue. (laughs) You're like, wait a minute. I don't do anything for men. I don't even see them. (laughs) That's exactly right. So you started smoking when you're in seventh grade. Didn't your singing teacher, what happened with your singing teacher? Cause you started smoking. Well, that's sad. 
But um, so our whole family was very into musical theater. We went to a lot of live theater. Both my older sisters sang and danced and performed in community theaters. In fact, my sister, my middle sister, performed in the Nutcracker at the McCormick Place in Chicago, which is a pretty big deal. Christmas time, it's a big um, mm -hmm. center. Um, so they were active. And so, of course, I got active in singing and dancing at a young age. Um, I had, I don't know, 10 years of ballet and tap and just, you know, lots of dancing. So I sang, and I naturally had a nice voice. Most kids do. Well, I should say most, but, you know, you can be trained. I don't know. Most kids have a cute voice, so you just have to be trained, you know, mm -hmm. and then you get older. And anyway, so my mother sent me to this fancy American conservatory of music place downtown Chicago for singing lessons. And the singing teacher's name, I'll never forget, Mrs. Gertling. <laughs> Gertling. She was very German. And I had a couple lessons with her. And one time I came in and I smelled like smoke. And she said she refused to teach me any. There's no point in teaching me to sing if I was going to smoke cigarettes. And <laughs> I'm so sorry you thought that was sad. When I was growing up, I felt like that was like a joke in our house. It's like, ha ha, remember when you got kicked out of singing lessons because you smoked? And I was like being all chummy. And then I brought it up today. And you're like, that is quite sad. And then you told it in a somber way. So, <laughs> oops. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is funny. I mean, I want, you know, it's kind of like the the rebel, you know, the devil who calms people or gets away with things, you know, there's always an element of sadness if you're not conforming to something, but it also is very, can be very funny. I mean, we glorify criminals all the time. We romanticize con artists and, and rebels. So, I mean, I could see where that would be funny between you and me growing up. I don't think that's a bad takeaway. Oh, thank you. Well, speaking of romanticizing criminals, I don't, screw you up anymore. I don't want to screw you up any more than I already have. So, well, you've done enough. You know, we're good. Yeah, the rest of life can screw me up now. You know, you've done your work. You put in your time. Speaking of putting in time, what was your major in college? Law enforcement. And when I say law enforcement, I don't mean criminal justice. I mean a four-year degree in law enforcement, Western Illinois University. Illinois. Because you're going to be Illinois, a... Illinois. Illinois, Illinois. Have you ever heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny sometimes when you're from Chicago, you forget that you're part of this another a state called Illinois. It's like there's Chicago and then there's the rest of the world. So when I say I went to Western Illinois University, I'm like, oh yeah, and that's in Illinois. I'm like, wait a minute, that's in the title. Everyone. <laughs> there's Chicago versus everyone else. Yeah, you just, you know... You live in your little world of Chicago. Don't have a big concept anything outside of it. And you wanted to be a cop. Is that embarrassing? I did. Is that embarrassing to admit you want to be a cop? It's embarrassing to say it now because of the work that I do and what people think of cops now, especially in my line of business. But for me personally, it's a fond memory because I wanted to be a cop because I wanted to help people. I was going into it for the right reasons. It can often attract people that are badge happy or gun happy or, you know, have issues with control and power. But I actually was going in really, I think, with the right attitude. I wanted to maintain order and people to be able to rely on each other and help communities be safe. I mean, I, you know, at the time, that was my thinking. You just want to be a border collie and control everyone. <laughs> I do love border collies. <laughs> no, I hurt everybody. Mom, you're so evasive. You're like, well, in my line of business, what is your what is your job now? Why did you say it like that? 
Well, I have a public defender, basically. I mean, I'm a private criminal defense attorney, but I do 100% public defender work for the state of Montana's public defender office. That was a long title. I know. <laughs> I think you added. Public defender, public defender is probably the quickest <laughs> way to refer to me. So how did you end up as a public defender if you wanted to be a cop? Well, that's age 16 to age 30. Seven. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's all calm down. <laughs> what happened after you graduated college? Because you were on, you wanted to be a cop. So what was the next step? Remember, we're just kind of doing an overview of the Lisa B experience and we'll do deep dives in later episodes. So I majored in law enforcement. And actually, when I think back to it, the reason probably why I wanted to be a cop so bad is I watched way too much Hill Street Blues and Beretta and Starsky and Hutch. I mean, those are my my guiding lights when I was in high school. So that's who I wanted to be. I don't know if I wanted to be a cop or I wanted to be Starsky and Hutch, right? Um, <laughs> but anyway. Um, Who's Starsky so, and Hutch for people who don't know that, which I know because I'm your daughter, maybe, but they're cop? No, they're bad guys. They're criminals. They're, you know, <laughs> Starsky and Hutch were two, two white cops. One was dark haired, one had blonde hair. And actually the blonde haired guy, I can't remember his name in real life, but he went on to become a singer. I think he made some albums. I was so excited and bought one of his albums, but I don't remember any of that. Yeah, it really stuck with you. Made a difference. <laughs> and Beretta was a great show with Robert Blake, who ended up having a very interesting uh, career. I think he was charged with homicide of his wife. And I don't know what happened with all that. But anyway, that was... Uh, I thought you, you know when he was famous for Hmm. Wait, I'll tell you, Robert Blake, who played Beretta in this cop show when I was in high school, became famous for his role in In Cold Blood, which is a Truman Capote book that was made into a pretty famous movie. And I think he played the character Perry Smith, or maybe he played the other one. And those were about two criminals. And that was the book, I think, that is the reason why I wanted to go into law enforcement. I mean, people talk about, oh, you know, I read this book, it changed my life. I don't know if it changed my life, but it had such an impact on me. I must have been 12 when I read it, 13, and that's when I decided I want to be a police officer. It was from reading that book because it was such a senseless, brutal killing. Mm -hmm. It made no sense to me. I think actually what I really wanted to go into was criminal psychology. Mm -hmm. You know, like how can two kids raised in the same neighborhood with similar influences and one becomes a doctor and the other one becomes a gangbanger? Like mm -hmm. what happened? that people end up with these choices, you know? So that's what's- Do you think you didn't go towards psychology because like stigma towards women in science? Or do you think you just kind of got caught up, caught up in the fanfare of like, ooh, being a cop, cop uh, busting the bad guys? I think my plan at 16 and 17 was I would be a cop for five to 10 years. I would rise up within department and then I would get my master's in criminology, eventually my PhD, and then I would work with police departments and trying to understand and break down criminal psychology. I think that was my thinking at the time. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I would be a cop forever. I thought I needed I needed to do it, wanted to do it. I thought it would lend itself to the type of career that I had you know, pictured for myself. Okay, so you finished college with your law enforcement degree, and then you're going to be a cop. So what happens next? Well, I think what's important to understand is that when I started college, it's the 1970s, and the Los Angeles Police Department was in the news as being the most innovative uh, police force in the country. And they were really looking for women, 
and they were modernizing all their squad cars and putting in radios and doing all these crazy things that were considered very cutting edge. And I wanted to go to LA and be a cop there. And so pretty much all of my years of college, it was just working towards that goal, but you have to be 21 to take the police test. So I was just killing time really till I turned 21. I got out of college, I think when I was 20. So I was just tending bar and waiting tables. And I, I think I started when I was 17 because I dropped out of high school. Why'd you drop out of high school? Never... <laughs> so when I turned 15, I got a job as a bus girl in this restaurant, which really is the classic Italian restaurant, you know, with the red, for, uh, what's it called? Not formaldehyde. What's that stuff called? The red, um No. No, it's uh, Nagahide. Nagahide, I think it's called. Oh. They're very traditional. A word I've never heard of. You wanted me to give you that word. Nagahide? Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Yeah, right. <laughs> Definitely not formaldehyde. <laughs> it's, it's like a fake leather. I don't know what it's called. But anyway, people will, will understand who have ever been to a very traditional Italian restaurant. It was a very traditional Italian restaurant slash pizza joint down in the south side of Chicago that had this very mob-like mobster atmosphere. I mean, it was a restaurant right out of Goodfellows or The Godfather or anything like that. Most of the clientele was Italian. And so I got this job there and um, I started making very good money as a little bus girl. I was 15. And what happened is at nighttime, at like midnight, they would close and they would shut the curtains. And all these dark limo, not limos, but like Grand Prix and Monte Carlos and these sort of mobster associated cars would pull up and they would put green felt down on all the tables and they ran an illegal gambling operation all night where people could come and play poker. And so after getting to know the boss a little bit, he asked me if I want to stick around, and help out, just basically serving drinks and doing stuff. And so I did. And I can I still remember to this day, cigarettes were 45 cents a pack mm -hmm. out of the cigarette machine. Mm -hmm. And these guys used to give me five and 10 bucks and tell me to go get them a pack of cigarettes and keep the change. So I started having this shoebox in my bedroom with just hundreds and hundreds of dollars that I didn't need <laughs> because my parents had another shoebox with cash that I could take out whenever I wanted and use it for whatever I wanted. So, so money was not an issue <laughs> at all. Um, so moral of that boring story is that it's um, not boring. Why well, do you think it's boring? Everything you say is bonkers. You were 15 working at the illegal gambling ring and getting tipped a bunch of money. That that's the dream. I wish I could be tipped a bunch of money. I can't even work legally in Spain other than my stupid 12 hours a week gig I got going. Anyway, enough about me. Back to you. Yeah, but you're living in Spain. You're making memories. You're having the time of your life. You're not in any kind of a daily grind. There's a lot of other value to what you're doing right now than just the fact you're not making money. So, all right. Thank you. Have for your shot. <laughs> Thank you for being so, so wise. I was working, I, I, you know, after school, I'd go to work at four and I'd work my regular shift till 10 or 11, but then I'd stick around till two, three in the morning when they had these little poker tables set up and I then I had to get up for the school bus for, you know, I was a sophomore, junior in high school and I'd get up for the school bus at 6am or whatever crazy time. And so I got sick of it. 
So I was in my junior year and I walked into the counselor's office. Now you, you gotta understand the counselor's office in the seventies is much different than the counselor's <laughs> offices I saw when you were in high school. Our counselor offices, I don't know if it's because it was a liberal progressive era, <clears throat> things were changing, but I mean, we used to just be able to leave pee samples with this guy and he would run them and let us know we're pregnant. Never told our parents, never talked to anybody else about it. We just bring in our little brown bag with our little pee samples and he would go get test them for us and then help us figure out where to get abortions. So it was a different time. <laughs> but anyway, I walked into his office and said, I'm sick of this Mickey Mouse bullshit. I have to be here every day from nine to three. You know, it's an hour of study hall, an hour of lunch, an hour of recess, and I work in a job and this is dumb. I have to get up and come here and do this Mickey Mouse. I'm dropping out. He was very clever and very smart and goes, don't drop out because let's figure out how to get the rest of your credits that you need to graduate at a local junior college. And he did all, I didn't do anything, I didn't do shit. I mean, all, he just called me back in his office a couple weeks later and said, okay, thanks for not dropping out, here's the plan. And he figured out I only needed like two night classes to get whatever credits I needed to graduate high school. And so I stopped going to school in the middle of my junior year, high school, mm -hmm. and took the two nights a week and did it like Monday and Wednesday nights or something where I took two classes both nights. One was like econ and one was math. I don't know what the hell it was. <laughs> and um and then I never went back to high school after that. And then when I finished the junior college thing, I just gave him the paperwork and he gave me my diploma. And I mean, I never went to a high school graduation or anything like that. So, so I was done 15. I was done mm -hmm. with school and it was Mickey Mouse. And I was with the big boys now having a good time. So <laughs> that's, so what was my point of that whole story? You're, that's why you oh, graduated college so early. College. Yeah, I started college at 17 because my birthday is January. So I started 17, I turned 18 in my freshman year, mm -hmm. right? So um, I got out when I was 20 or soon to be 21 or something. You know, I got out in three years. College was just stupid in those days, at least the one I went to. <laughs> I, I don't remember ever doing homework. I mean, but it's also my major, right? I mean, you know, I think I've told you my, you know, my literature course was called Literature of Crime and Detection. And we read like, you know, detective novels and then talked about them. I mean, it wasn't, I don't remember being challenged. The only, the only class I got an F in was biology. That was my first semester. And that's because the lab was on Fridays during happy hour. The labs were like four to six on Friday. And I'm like, I'm not going to lab during happy hours. So uh, I thought I could die with the D, but I ended up getting the F. And the funny thing is, of course, my dad's a doctor, my sister's the dentist, and it's the first grade on my college transcripts. It's like F, biology. And they just thought that was the funniest thing in the world, you know. Anyway. That is funny. <laughs> um, you, w was it legal to drink at 18? Or did you have fake ID? Or did you just go to places where they didn't check? So it was legal to drink at 19 until the year of my 19th birthday, and then it changed to 21. <laughs> <laughs> I had been waiting like years to be 19. And literally January 1st of the year I was to turn 19, Illinois went 21 for drinking age. So yeah, I had fake ID since I was like 15, I think. So it's different too these days, you know, a lot of you guys go and you get fake IDs. I hear you send things off to China and then they send you back something. And I, mean, I don't know how it all works now, but in those days, 
you just, whoever you were smoking dope with, you would say to them, I need a fake ID. And then they would just take your picture and come back with one and they'd sell it to you. And I have no idea if people were making them in their basements. I have no idea what people were doing, but I had a fake ID. Maybe when I was 14, I don't remember. I had a fake ID pretty early on. Oh my God. So you just got in everywhere, no problem. You just use your fake ID. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't remember ever having somebody like question my ID. But again, you know, the 70s, <laughs> this was before Mothers Against Drunk Driving were formed. This was, this was the days when it was a badge of honor to drive yourself home when you were drunk. Mm. You know, somebody was like, hey, maybe I should take your keys. You're like, oh, no, I can do it. I'm great. I'm like, yeah, you can do it. And then, you know, you drive home drunk. And it was just a different culture surrounding drinking. Um, in fact, you were considered kind of a, can I say pussy? You know, kind of a, uh, I don't know. A weenie hot like, junior? A weenie. You, know, you were like a weenie if you needed someone to drive you home, mm-hmm. needed help or, you know, anything like that. It was just a different kind of culture. I mean, I'm glad Mothers Against Drunk Drivers formed and, cre- you know, raised the consciousness of a culture and, you know, things have changed. And, and in your age group, it always surprised me so much, you know, that you guys are just like, yeah, you got to have a DD. And have a designated driver. It's like just not even an issue. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who flaunt the rules, but it's a big paradigm shift in the culture surrounding drinking from when I was young to now. Mm-hmm. So you were a little alcoholic, having fun in college, and then you wanted to be LAPD. So, I, so I'm not going to tell you the story about what happened with the LA police test and just tell you I didn't get in. Okay, and we'll we we'll tell that. that a different day. That's a fun story. That's a good story. Oh, not good. It was heartbreaking. But um, <laughs> the lesson from that story, the takeaway is you have to learn to lie early on if you want to make it in life. That was the lesson I took away from that. But um, so I was tending bar and working for a company that was called Bennigan's, which I don't even know if they exist anymore, but kind of like a thank God it's Fridays or something like that. And actually it was kind of a cool job. They trained me to be a bartender and then they would fly me to go to new Bennigan's that were being open. And I would train the new bartenders on how to bartend. It was fun, young, single, drinking, flying around, training bartenders was a good time. That's so um, cool. And so I was maybe going to go off in that direction at some point because I was kind of good at it and, and it was fun. Um, and then my dad, who rarely, of course, had anything to say to me, um, and if he did, it was always just kind of living vicariously through my bandit life before I realized he was living his own private bandit life. But anyway, <laughs> he, he made a comment that stuck with me, you know, I guess. And he said, you know, you have such a big mouth, you should think about going to law school. <laughs> and I remember thinking, yeah, I never thought about that. I do have a big mouth. <laughs> I would be a good lawyer. I mean, that seemed to be, the, you know, all the criteria you really needed. And so... So then I, you know, I shopped around a little and I applied to a lot. So Chicago has five law schools. Mm-hmm. Two of the most well-known are kind of for the, you know, academic-minded and the smart people and the privileged people. And I don't know where the hell I was, but I wasn't in one of those circles. So I went to the, the John Marshall Law School, which was one of five in Chicago. I mean, reputable. It wasn't like I was, you know, doing some third-rate school. Mom. It just wasn't, it wasn't Northwestern University. It wasn't University of Chicago. It was the John Marshall Law School. Mom, you went to Marshall Law? (laughs) The 
John Marshall Law School. I know, but come on. Did you guys not joke about Marshall Law? No. Oh, <laughs> sorry. You guys weren't funny back then? Okay. Good to know. I think, I think John Marshall was a famous Supreme Court justice. I should probably know that. I don't know that. I think he was famous. Not famous enough that's for us to know. <laughs> that's another thing that's funny. I mean, when I went to this law school in the downtown Chicago, I mean, it was such an armpit. And we used to study in the boiler room. On, you know, it was it was the days. So 1981 is when I entered. And those were the days where and there was a popular movie at the time called Paper Chase. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But those were the days where you literally would sit down the first day of law school. and There'd be 100 people in the room and the professor would say, look to your left, look to your right, because one of you ain't going to be here in three years. So it was kind of like a scared straight sort of training. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they would purposely say your last name incorrectly as sort of a humiliating exercise that it sounds like maybe what it's like in the military, you know, to teach you to stay on your feet and argue back and, you know, have some backbone. I mean, all these little tricks and things they did because they thought it was going to make you a better lawyer, which I, from what I hear from you youngins mm -hmm. these days doesn't happen, at least not in the University of uh, Montana Law School. Sounds like they, they help the students, <laughs> cater, to, cater to them and, you know, support them and provide, you know, study groups and safe spaces and all these things we didn't have. We used to just like study in the boiler room and yeah, different time. How many women were in your intro, uh, not intro, like your big, when you began law school, how big was your class and how many of them are women? So not what you would think. Um, you know, Chicago was a major city, and I think that the percentage of men to women um, law students and lawyers was not as disparate as it is or was in many other places. I'm guessing 30 or 40 percent. I mean, I never felt like I was one of the few women, or I didn't have a sense of being one of the few women. Um, in fact, I was president of my law school class, so it didn't, I, I never felt, um, I mean, and it's funny, though, you say that when I think about it, my study group, mm -hmm. people I hung out with all three years, it was four guys and me. So <laughs> maybe I was, maybe there was less women than I thought, but um, it, that wasn't a thing, really, uh, for me, personally. <laughs> no women wasn't a thing. Okay, I'll jot that down, Mom. <laughs> and, but, you know, you have to understand as well, in this climate today, there's things that Gen Z and, and even millennials to a certain extent are giving names to and explaining that we just accept it as normal. I mean, for example, my first job interview out of law school was with the United States Attorney's Office in Illinois, mm -hmm. right, which is a big deal. And one of the first questions they asked me was, are you pregnant? Are you planning to get pregnant? When do you think you're going to get pregnant? We don't want to spend the money training you if you're going to leave in six months or a year. Are you married? How long have you been married? I mean, those those were just normal questions that you were supposed to answer if you wanted the damn job. I mean, it took me 30 years to look back and say, huh, hmm, maybe that wasn't an appropriate question <laughs> to ask me. Right? But at the time, it was – here's another little quick little thing. If, so Oprah Winfrey, everybody knows and loves her, but I remember when she started – because she started in Chicago. She started her show in Chicago, and she had been a news broadcaster mm -hmm. before she started her Oprah Winfrey show. Mm -hmm. And 
she tells a great story about how she realized that her fellow broadcaster, her fellow guy that she's broadcasting the news with, was literally making like $30,000 more. I think she was paid like 24 and he paid 54 or something mm -hmm. thousand. And so she went to her bosses. So this must have been uh, mid 70s, maybe, um, maybe early 80s. But she went to her boss and said, how come he's getting more money than me? And their answer was, why do you need it? He has a wife. He has children. He has a home. He has to pay the mortgage. You're a single girl in an apartment. Why do you need the money? <gasps> she had to explain why it wasn't fair to do the same work and not get the same pay. So I'm just telling you, things have changed a lot. <laughs> I mean, when you go into jobs now, I don't think you have to face those kind of, um, uh, you know, questions. It was normal. Like I'm gobsmacked, mother. Gobsmacked. <laughs> well, that was Oprah's story, not mine. But <laughs> I do remember having being asked a lot of questions about my marriage plans, my pregnancy plans, my housing plans, you know, all these things, because they didn't think it was worth it to invest in somebody for training and whatever, you know. Did that wear you down? Did it make you not like it? At that time, again, it just was normal. Yeah, okay. Right? Just normal. It's I mean, those were the days when, you know, you didn't wear a short skirt because, you know, boys can't be trusted, so you better not wear a short skirt. You're just asking for it. Mm. You know, it was a different time. Than now. Well, yeah, and you were chummy chummy with men and like men with big egos and bravado because A, your cop friends when you were a teenager and in college, and then when you were a prosecutor, a young prosecutor in Chicago after law school. 90% of the people I worked with was mentored by, worked alongside from age 15 on were, were men. Mm -hmm. And I never realized how much I didn't like them until I got in my 50s and 60s. <laughs> do you do you know what switched? Like, do you have a specific moment or memory where you're like, wait a damn minute, I don't even like these guys? Or is it just a gradual over time realizing you thrive a lot more being around women? I don't know if I thrive more around women. Um, I just realized how much time I spent in my life accommodating and tiptoeing around and and looking up to men that really had very little to offer me or to make my life better in any way. I just, it took getting, it took creating some space and getting away from being so immersed in male domination or male dominated worlds mm -hmm. for me to get perspective, to be able to identify some of the areas where it wasn't a healthy environment. I mean, you guys use the word toxic masculinity these days, and that wasn't a phrase we mm -hmm. had. And that wasn't, we didn't talk about machoism or machismo or machismo or whatever the word, we didn't talk about it like that. It's just boys will be boys and this is how who they are if you wanna succeed. In fact, I was trained by male lawyers, male whoever, that in order to compete with men, you had to act like a man. That was the thinking in the when I was 70s and 80s, you know, that has changed significantly for women. And for me personally, I've realized over time, I don't have to act like an asshole to compete <laughs> in the world in any way. I can, I can be a nice person. I'm not saying that there's no nice men, but I'm just saying the idea was you had to act like them to compete with them. And mm -hmm. I don't believe that anymore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it takes a while to undo these things that have become very normal and ordinary and familiar. Yeah, because you were 
as you're working as a young prosecutor, you also had a, (laughs) you went out all the time, right? Do you think you had a drinking problem for like when you were a teenager? Do you think it started? Or do you think law school is what kind of put into the next gear? Because like, I'm not trying to drag you through the mud, but I, you quit drinking for a reason. You know, it wasn't your best form. I quit, I quit drinking at age 30 mm-hmm. and I haven't had a drink. So I don't know. I've been sober. I don't know. I don't even feel, it feels weird to even say I've been sober. I just stopped drinking. So I haven't had a drink in 30 some years mm-hmm. or drugs, but from age, you know, 12, 13 Wait. to age 30. Mom, do you remember you did an edible at the Lady Gaga concert like five years ago? Yay, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> my first edible i had to buy it it was it was called um was called something what did lady gaga used to call her people monsters little monsters yeah little monsters i think yeah so okay so now i'm like in my 50s and i go to this lady gaga concert with a friend of mine i haven't been to a concert in probably since indigo girls in the in the 80s right it's the last concert i went to and and um or early 90s maybe and then um, my friend wanted to stop at it. So, so marijuana Ill- was illegal in the state of Montana and the concert was in the state of Washington. And so she wanted to stop at a dispensary in Washington to stock up because she liked to vape or whatever. So I've never been to a dispensary. Have you been to a dispensary? Yeah. Well, now it's legal in Montana. I haven't been home since it's legal, but yeah, because you were in Washington. For the when concert. you went to college in LA, did you, did they have dispensaries there? Yeah, was they did. They did, but you had to be 21 to enter. But as we both know, I had a fake ID, so I guess that wasn't a problem. But I didn't buy you anything. Um, I physically went in. I didn't buy anything. Well, I found it. Why are you asking? Huh? What do you want to know? <laughs> you trying to bust me? Narc? Yeah. yeah. How many times have you been to a dispensary, young lady? <laughs> Missy? <laughs> Don't make me stop this car. Um, you know. <laughs> um, I thought it was mind blowing. I could walk into a store and just see these rows and rows of marijuana and buds and all these crazy names and all these ways of smoking it and ingesting it. I just, I thought it was hysterical. And so then of course I have this whole section of gummies and, and candies and chocolate and it's all got, you know, whatever levels of THC or no THC because it's CBD or BBB or whatever. Mm-hmm, and so, yeah. You know when they put BBC in your caramels? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. I enjoyed it. It was a fun little, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. I could never, anyway. So so I'm walking and there's these chocolates and they're called Little Monsters. (laughs) And I said, well, I have to get those before the Lady Gaga concert. (laughs) And my girlfriend said, are you going to do an edible? (laughs) And I said, well, I'm not driving. And... I haven't done anything like this in, I don't at that point, 25 years or something. Mm-hmm. And and I've never done an edible. And why not? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I bought them. And then, of course, you know, the thing was, wait an hour for it to kick in. Mm-hmm. Don't take another one. Because if you take another one, you'll get really stoned or mm-hmm. sick, maybe. And, of course, I didn't, as being one to never pay much attention to rules and labels, <laughs> I wasn't feeling anything for the first 40 minutes of the first one. And the concert was, you know, half over. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm taking another one. Well, then that, that was a stupid decision. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, because I, I think I was in college when you went, you sent me photos. You sent me two photos, and it just was blurry lights. No stage, no Lady Gaga, 
you could have been anywhere in the world that had some neon lights. I was like, thanks, mom. I'm glad you're enjoying the concert. <laughs> I think that's what I experienced because all I remember was like turning to my friend and saying, okay, where is she? Where's the stage? And of course it was the Lady Gaga concert, which I've now learned. It's quite the spectacular visual feast. They had built like a bridge that really was like a floating bridge that came out from the stage and went over the audience so she could walk basically like over the audience. And, and I couldn't, I'm like, is she on the stage? Where is she? Oh my gosh, she's in the walls. I couldn't see her. I couldn't hear her. I couldn't tell the lights. I was facing the wrong direction at one point, trying to see what was going on. <laughs> and my friend was like turning my head, oh, she's over there. So the point is I completely missed the second half of that concert because <laughs> I was so high. And then we got back to our little B&B and I laid, I didn't even make it to the bed. I laid down, there was like a chair, you know, ottoman thing. And I sat down there and fell asleep in that position and stuff for like, I don't know, 10 hours or so. She was trying to get trouble waking me up in the morning because we had to go. And we were going to like do something after the concert. We had all these fun plans. I mean, the concert was over at 10 or something. And oh my God. Yeah, but you're not a, you're not a night owl. I feel like sober Lisa could sleep in a chair if she gets there after 10 30 PM because it's way past her bedtime anyway. Well, definitely now, but that was, you know, 10 years ago. Okay. Whatever. No, it, it was 20 years ago. ago. It was back in the 80s. You, I love how you change time frames. I think it was five or six years ago. Okay, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it can be 10 years ago if you want to make it more dramatic. <laughs> You're so funny. Oh, like, yes. Other than that little 40, <laughs> I haven't done any drugs or drinking since I was 30. No, there's one other night. <laughs> <laughs> this is the slip-ups episode. All the times she's sober, basically. No, I really, I really haven't. So about five years after I completely quit drinking and doing any drugs or anything, I thought, I could go out and have a few beers. I think everybody does this at some point when they quit smoking, drinking. After a certain period of time, you feel like I beat it. Mm -hmm. I can now dabble. Right. Because there's people out there in the world that can have a couple drinks and go home. Right. Mm -hmm. I was never that person. <laughs> and so, you know, or they could have one or two beers and be done. I was never that person. But I thought, well, it's been five years. I can now be that person. Well, I could never be that person. I had to learn that lesson. So I went out for a couple of beers with a friend and it happened to be the night that I met um, the comedian that I've been friends with now for years. You're just not going to name drop anyone, are you? Should we just call him the comedian? He was a magician. He was a comedian. He was a lot of things. He was, he's a, he, uh, he bought you. I mean, he's, he's a lot of things. He bought you a Roomba? No, he wouldn't buy the Roomba. <gasps> oh, you're he right. He used to buy the Roomba. <laughs> he, he would buy me an iPad. He would send me to London. He would pay for plane. He would do anything. He was very generous big heart, very kind to me in many ways. And all I wanted, and for years we were friends and every year I'd say, all I want is the Roomba. I saw it on Breaking Bad, Jesse had one. And I thought, I want that thing. No, I'm not getting that for you. It's just gonna die. It's gonna bump into furniture. It's gonna eat your rugs. It's not a good purchase. And I'm like, well, I want it. You don't need to buy me an iPad or anything else. I just want a fucking, I'm sorry, want a freaking Roomba. <laughs> And you can cuss. Refuse. 
And I finally bought it for myself. And it's one of my favorite things I own besides my dog and my fireplace. Not the cat. Wow. I'm going to tell Bam Bam. <laughs> oh, cat's number four. I love my Roomba. I, I think it's the greatest invention in the world. I think they're amazing. And I have the perfect floor for it. Mm -hmm. I don't have rugs. Mm -hmm. I don't have lips and grades and whatever. I just have wood floors and it just zips around and I love it. She gets stuck in the same spot every day though. There's one spot she gets stuck and it's because my floors are slanted. When she goes under the, the, whatever it's called, not the Cuisinart. What's that thing called next to the dining room table? Cabinet? Uh, yeah, but it's got another name. <laughs> Oh my God, I'm getting so old. It's not commode. What is it called? <laughs> it's <awesome> thing. <laughs> that thing that sits under the big mirror next to the dining room table. It's called. Um, An armoire. Okay, armoire? An armoire? Oh. No. An armoire is a closet. You're a closet. It's a shifferobe. A shifferobe and armoire are, similar, are saying similar things. No. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, basically a cabinet. It's a storage unit, but it looks good. And it probably has a fancy French name. We don't remember right now. Anyway, it gets stuck under there. Rosie, Rosie, the Roomba. The back two legs because the floor is slanted. So I can't, when it goes in the one side, I can't get out the other side. So mm -hmm. I have to, but I just walk over and take my toe and just move it. And then it's fine. But it goes and does everything else. It's great. You named your Roomba, it. right? <laughs> Initially I called her Rosie after the, I think the Jetsons had a, electronic made did you ever see the jetsons i know what it is, is but have i seen an actual episode no i used to love that show and i couldn't tell you a single thing about it <laughs> like most of your life <laughs> no i remember some gilligan's island episodes i remember some andy griffith episodes dick van dyke i mean there was these you know shows that we all watched growing up together that's another other thing that's so different you know you guys just don't have shared media content, you guys. I find it very frustrating when I see a great series on Netflix or something and I ask somebody and they haven't seen it. I, it's like, I, 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 have no, I don't want anything to do with this person because we can't share what, we've, what I've watched on Amazon or Netflix. So you start limiting your circles to you know the people that only watch the stuff that you watch. So you have something to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> it was different. I can still tell you some of it, the lineups like in the 60s and 70s, you know, we all watched Wonderful World of Disney that came on after Jacques Cousteau's Underwater Sea Adventures. Anyway, different time. They really imprinted those TV schedules in your brain. <laughs> <laughs> we used to get the TV guide. I think it came out on Sundays and literally sit down with a pen and like circle the movies we wanted to see, the shows that we had to watch. So we had like a schedule, at least I did, with my sister in the house I grew up in. You know, and then sometimes it would be like, I could specifically, <laughs> this is so dumb. I can specifically remember one night when The Wizard of Oz was on at the same time as Gone with the Wind <gasps> and my sister went upstairs and took one of the TVs out of, you know, we all had TVs in our bedrooms and took one of the TVs from upstairs brought it downstairs and plugged it in next to the main TV that was in the family room so we could have the Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind on at the same time and kind of switch back and forth. The one we wanted to see because you never know what it might be on TV again. 
another year before they took on with the wind or something. You, you had no, there's no videos. There's no way to access it. So when the TV guy said that was coming on, you were like highlighting that and putting it, in, putting it down to your schedule, your TV schedule. We completely forgot to talk about your other slip up from drinking when you met the comedian. Like how old were you when you met him? In Missoula, 30, right? In Montana. Yeah, 36, 37. And what happened? Uh, we stayed up all night and talked. Uh, so I went. So the point was, I was drinking, and because I was drinking, I was out. And because I was out, I was at a bar, and it happened to be comedy night. And he was performing, and I was my typical drunk, outrageous self. And when he was done, I walked up to the stage and said, "You're so fucking funny. You got to come sit down and join me for a drink." And he did, and then we just talked. And then he came back to my house, which under you know normal circumstances we would have had sex, but we didn't. We just talked all night. And then we just kept in touch after that. I mean, he was super funny, but he was traveling, he was moving out, you know, he's moving around. So he would just like come through Missoula when he had a gig here. But we talked and talked a lot on the phone. Um, we tried to date a little bit. It didn't take at all. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Like Jerry and um, Elaine. Oh my God, that was so funny. Why can't we have this? And then I still have that. Did you even <laughs> see that episode when they decided to sleep together? Mm-hmm. It was very funny. Um, so, um, I don't know. He has issues. I had issues. Just didn't take. (laughs) And then, (laughs) so, (laughs) but then I decided I wanted a baby. And so I asked him if he would sleep with me or give me a sperm. And he said, no. And then we didn't talk again. And he just, he moved and got a new phone number and never called me after that. Please, sir. Can I have some sperm? Okay. Oliver Twist. (laughs) Please, sir, may I have some sperm? <laughs> More? <laughs> well, now we call him Almost Daddy. So he circled back, but I guess we can get to that later. Mom, you want to know something funny? We've been talking for over an hour already, and we're like, what, 20 years into your fucking life? Jesus, Louises. So we're done for the day? Oh, no. so you can play around with it? We're not done. We're not done. We're going to keep going. <laughs> but that will probably be episode one. You know, the whole Lisa story part one. Come for part two. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want more content from us, subscribe to our Patreon, which is just Patreon slash Enmeshed. On there, we will release special mini episodes only for our patrons. These episodes include Lisa B. Explains Current Events, where she explains trending topics with ease and clarity. Lisa B. Book Reviews, because she's listened to 57 audiobooks on Libby this past year. And my favorite... Lisa B. Lawyer Terms for Layman's, where she will take a word or concept we've all heard on TV or in the news, like libel or manslaughter, and explain it to all of us who don't have a law degree. If you want more information about us, check out my TikTok, at molly.kaufman. You'll see a lot about being a contract baby and what that means, but you can search hashtag contract baby on TikTok and you'll find most of the videos. And email us. Do you have questions, comments? You can send your emails to ameshed with Molly and Lisa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.